This week, we're going to continue our series throughout the summer, Performance Equals Profit, Part 2. Welcome to Cracking the Code, the show that helps you overcome the challenges you face every day in contracting and keeps you on the cutting edge of emerging trends and best practices. Welcome to the audio version of Cracking the Code. Now, this was originally a video show, so if you hear us talking about something related to an image or any other visual element, you can see what we're talking about by going over to egia.org show and see what we're doing there in Cracking the Code. Thanks for listening. Let's get started. You know, on last week's show, we had Gary Ellis come in and talked about the importance of our CSRs really understanding the brand experience, the wow experience, making sure they understand their role in the bigger picture, making sure they understand how important what they do and what they say on the phone really reflects on all of us and, you know, really either it builds to or takes away from the brand experience. This week, we're going to have Gary come back and we're going to talk about how do we get the CSRs in alignment, how do we get their behaviors in alignment with that brand experience. So joining us now, Mr. Gary Ellis. So number one, implementation. First thing I want you to do is I want you to conduct a 360 degree review of yourself and your customer service with what we call an employee survey. You can go out on the Contractor University site, you can go into the HR section, Human Resources, go in the best practice that says reviews, 360 degree review process is already there, it's the one I use. I give it to all my team members and I go, I don't care if you put your name on it or not, it doesn't matter, want your feedback, want to know what we're doing right, want to know what we're doing wrong, what you perceive that we're doing wrong, don't care, write it, Tell me what's going on. I want, to, I want reviewed on leadership. I want reviewed on what we're doing on customer service. I want what we're doing on employee relationships, benefits, all of it. I don't care. Give it to me. Okay? Now, a lot of people are going to be very nervous about that idea, but that's the exact place that you need to start. Your focal point is in changing people's behavior patterns. You cannot change somebody's behavior pattern until you identify the idea that why they think what they think. It's not about money. It's not about training. It's about how did they arrive at what they think. So I can't tell you what you're thinking unless you tell me what you're thinking. 360 degree survey. Do it. Do it every single year. Get the feedback from your team members. Get the feedback from what's going on in your circle. If you are a one-man band, then you don't have to worry about this. But if you have two people, it's worth doing. If you have 10 people, clearly you need to do that. So a $1 million company that has three technicians, maybe a maintenance technician, probably a bookkeeper, maybe somebody in the office doing some payables, some receivables, maybe doing some customer service dispatch, business owner, and maybe an installation crew and a helper, you might have between 8 and 10 employees. you got to get their feedback. Okay. They're going to tell you exactly what's going on. But the thing that we're going to attack is the change pattern here on the behaviors, meaning that they may think that they're doing it right for you. And they may believe in their heart of hearts that they are doing it right. And that's where their belief system and your belief system don't match. I want it done this way. You're going to do it this way. You think you're doing it really well. I'm un unhappy with that. Or the customer in the center is unhappy with that. And so sometimes we get feedback and sometimes we don't. So that business owner who took my phone call and yelled at me and hung up on me, he doesn't understand the first thing about customer service. He might think he does, but he was a hot-headed entrepreneurial business guy 
who was a technical guy who got by and built his business because he was the fastest guy to get to the garage door fix. But as he built his business, his transition from an entrepreneurial state to a managerial leadership state is in turmoil. And so what happens is he grew to his Peter principle. His customer service and brand experience practices grew to his level of technical competency. But his bedside manner sucks. So he is paying the price because he ran into a customer who has the capabilities to go out to the marketplace. And he didn't know who I was or what my capabilities were, but you never know who your customers are. You don't know if they're attorneys, you don't know if they're doctors, you don't know who they're connected to, but we're all connected 4.3 to everybody in the world now because of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. You can't afford the luxury of doing it any other way. Find out what's going on, adjust. Second, you gotta conduct some customer research. One of my favorite stories is of a company down in the Fort Myers area. And this young man uh, has built a pretty impressive revenue stream for a business in a very short amount of time. And he tells the story that the first thing that he did before he opened up his business as an operating unit is he went out and he walked the neighborhoods and he asked about 100 different people that own homes, just knocking on the door, hi, I'm Gary, I'm going to start up a heating and air conditioning company, air conditioning in this market, and I'd like to know what's important to you about why you would choose an air conditioning company. And he asked 100 customers. So he went to way more than 100 homes because some people are going to slam the door, but that didn't deter him. What he was doing was he was creating research for himself it created continuity on how he would go about selling, marketing, and what his brand promise would be in that marketplace. He went from zero to $27 million in three years. I don't know about you, but I've never accomplished anything like that. I've gone close to $10 million in a three-year period on a growth plan, and I thought that was pretty special. And to some degree, it is pretty special. On the other hand, I'm looking at that number right there and I'm thinking, that's a pretty amazing statistic, okay? Now, he'd been on Blue Collar Millionaires, he's been out on CNBC. I mean, he's got a story that goes beyond just the principles of what we're talking about. But the first thing that he did was he walked around the neighborhoods and he asked the customers, what makes it important to you to choose an air conditioning company? What do you want? That is market research. Now, you can pay somebody to do that, or you can do it yourself, or you can pay third-party independent standards. You can look at the research that's out there. Personally, from my point of view, the customer research that we've done in the past with our focus groups has given us clarity and direction beyond anything that you can possibly imagine. Now, if you're a smaller business, you might want to join up in a network of organizations. ACA has mixed groups. Uh, you can join other team members, other areas of the country. You guys can work together with your resources. EGIA, through its own research arm, we send out information and we do research that we send out then from feedback for contractors. But this is to the consumer. We do the same thing on the commercial side. Our commercial maintenance uh, salespeople they walk around, they ask people that are in the commercial business. If they say, well, we already got a provider, we say, well, okay, great. Would you mind giving us about 30 seconds? 
Why did you choose your provider? What's important to you? What kind of things are you interested in? It's consultative sales process, high gain questions that are creating a research that formulate why you might want to set up a brand experience that you have, okay? So that's why I have a lifetime repair guarantee on my service repairs at this point. Parts and labor if you stay in my club. The customer is insulated against that repair again because the customer said that was important. No overtime, same thing. Seven to seven, no overtime, okay? So these kinds of things are driven by the data that you get back from your customers. Third implementation, you need a benchmarking system in your company. You need to say, I need a certain number of service agreements, but I'm going to need a renewal rate. If your customers are not renewing at the rate that you believe is effective, which is 85%, then that means your price value relationship and your brand deliverable, in other words, your experience that you're delivering, isn't enough to cover up the sin of the price of what you're doing. So I've had people say, well, people have told me that the service agreement's too expensive. Okay, what that really is saying is that they don't believe that the money that they're giving you is giving them the value back for what they're giving you. If they were feeling that they got 10 times the value for the service agreement, then they would give you that money because they would say, this is a great deal. So the customer does not feel as if they've done well in the negotiation process. So when you are not renewing your service agreements, that is a clear indication that your brand experience, your technicians are not building a relationship with the customer. And that's the foundation of what you really are doing. You've heard me say in video one, our entire purpose is to build a customer relationship. It's not about selling them equipment or selling them service or selling them indoor air quality. It's about creating a relationship with the customer where there's trust. So if they have a particular problem, they're willing to listen to us and they'll, they'll buy things because they're informed and educated and they make a decision. But they're a client that's doing business with us on a repeat basis. You know, one of the biggest challenges in our industry is that our service techs and oftentimes our salespeople, uh, they tend to sell out of their own back pocket. In other words, if they wouldn't buy high-end, they just assume the homeowner wouldn't buy high-end. If they're not the kind of person to buy some accessories, you know, or an extended warranty on something, they assume that the homeowners wouldn't buy an extended service agreement or, you know, some type of accessory. The reality is we have to be very careful not to get too hung up on what we would do as a buyer. It's okay if you're a cheap buyer, but don't assume all your customers are cheap buyers. You have to have an open mind, run through the process, and allow the homeowners to make their own decisions. One of the things you have to remember in this industry is that you are an expert and you get paid for what you do and for what you know. In fact, you should get paid more for what you know than you actually do. I want to share with you a, a quick clip from one of our core training programs that really illustrates this point. In this module, I want to discuss the concept that to be successful in this business, you need to understand that you don't just get paid for what you do, you also get paid for what you know. I mean, think about this. We've all had the experience, right? You go to someone's home. You walk in, you greet the homeowner, and there's a problem with their air conditioning system. You go out, you take a look at the system, and within about five minutes, you figure out exactly what's going wrong. So you come back to the homeowner, and you say, Mr. and Mrs. Homeowner, it's going to be X amount of dollars to you know, get the air conditioning uh, up and running again, and we have an $89 diagnostic fee. The homeowner looks at you and says, $89 for a diagnostic fee? You were only here just you know, 10 or 15 minutes as if they would somehow be better served if it took you two hours to figure out the problem.
The reality is your homeowner receives a higher level of service because of your experience, your qualifications, your tools, your training, everything that it takes for you to be able to do that quick diagnostic. But because you can do it so quickly as a result of your years of experience, somehow the homeowner actually wants to devalue you know, the value of what you've done. The reality is this is when you have to remember, you don't just get paid for those five or 10 minutes. You don't get paid for what you do. You get paid for your years of experience. You get paid for what you know. So you gotta make sure that when you walk in the house, you have the mindset that you get paid for the value of your education, your training, your tools, everything that you bring to the table, everything your company brings to the table. In other words, uh, you know, to put you in front of that customer, to have that service call to run in the first place. Your company, you, your van, your training, your tools, everything comes together to be able to provide that service in a very you know, effective way, a very efficient way for your homeowner. So you gotta keep in mind, you get paid not just for what you do, you also get paid for what you know. I want you to take a look at this video that illustrates this point. As professionals, if you want to be seen as a pro, you got to be a pro. And one of the things you got to understand is that you don't get paid for what you do. You get paid for what you know. You know, back in the 1980s, in the former Soviet Union, many of you may remember there was a nuclear plant at Chernobyl that melted down. What many of you may not know is that there was a second plant a couple of months later that almost the same thing happened. The plutonium rods began to overheat. But this time, instead of just sitting back to see what happens, they got a German guy that designed and engineered the plant. They got him on the phone and said, man, you need to get out here and make sure this thing does not melt down. We cannot have another Chernobyl. So the guy gets on the plane, he flies to Moscow, they take him out to the plant. When he gets to the plant, it's total chaos. I mean, alarms are going off, red lights are flashing, they've abandoned the plant, they're evacuating the town. I mean, this is potential total nuclear devastation. But this guy walks in, cool as a cucumber, goes down about six flights of stairs, and goes down to the base of the bowels of this nuclear plant. They've got these cooling towers that house the plutonium rods to keep them cool. And he's right there at ground zero. I mean, if this thing overheats, if this thing melts down, he's gonna go in a flash. But he walks right through all this chaos. He walks up to a big wall. There's all these valves and all these gauges. The guy looks at the wall for a second. He looks at one particular gauge, one particular valve. He reaches in and he closes the valve. Instantaneously, the pressures start coming down. The temperatures start coming down. Total nuclear devastation avoided. So the guy goes back to Germany, and about a month later, he sends the bill to the Soviet government. When he sends the invoice, it's a one-line item invoice. It says, averting nuclear disaster, $100,000. So they get the bill, and they say, $100,000? You weren't here but 15 minutes. We want a detailed breakdown of your invoice. So he sends the Soviet government another invoice. This time, there's two line items. The first line said, closing valve and averting nuclear disaster, $1. The second line said, knowing which valve to close, $99,999. You don't get paid just for what you do. You get paid for your years of experience. So the next time a homeowner asks you to drop the price, you gotta think like a nuclear service technician. You gotta think like a professional. You gotta remember, you get paid for knowing which valve to close. So you can see through this video, that this is really a mindset issue. You have to understand that before your customers are really gonna see you as the professional service provider that you are, you have to start seeing yourself that way first. The world's gonna see you the way you see yourself. 
if you see yourself just as the lowly HVAC guy, well, guess what? That's how people are going to treat you. But if you see yourself as a stone-cold professional, right, a solid professional whose job it is to diagnose problems or recommend solutions and whose job and responsibility it is to get compensated not just for what he or she does, but also for what he or she knows. Your years of experience, tools, et cetera, training, all those things come into play. So you got to see yourself as a professional before your homeowner is going to see you a professional. That, my friend, is the essence of the prosperity mindset. You know, one of the things I strongly believe, as do all the faculty here at Contract University, is that our attitudes have a lot to do with our success, right? If you look at successful people, they tend to have great attitudes. If you look at people who are failures in life, they tend to have very bad attitudes. Now, some people may say the failure creates the bad attitude. Personally, I believe the bad attitude creates the failure, right? The good attitude creates the success. So I want to share with you another video that really illustrates this point. Gary Alex is going to come in and talk to us a little bit about your attitude determines your altitude in life and business. There's three basic things that make up a successful individual. And so this is Napoleon Hill going back into the 1900s where Napoleon Hill was asked, he was commissioned actually to do a study amongst an entire generation of successful people. Just think about you know, people like uh, the Vanderbilts, uh, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, and in fact, Carnegie was the one who established this particular study. So the Carnegie Foundation was all about, hey, what was, well, how do we, we made all this money, how do we give it back? How do we figure out a way to help life improve for people that aren't as fortunate and successful, you know, as the Carnegies were? So what he did is he employed a writer named Napoleon Hill, and he networked Napoleon Hill across all of his contacts, all the most successful people of that era. These were titans of industry, and many of the foundation principles that were established in business back in the early days of the American Industrial Revolution came at the time that Napoleon Hill was doing this study. And in fact, he wrote a book called Think and Grow Rich. And if you haven't read that particular book, it's probably one of the first books that you should get and read because Think and Grow Rich is not about growing rich in terms of monetary success. It's about using your brain and thinking through how to actually control the outcome of what goes on relative to your world. So the thinking pattern is the discussion in the text, which is, hey, how do I become the very best me that I can? And what do I have to do differently? So the cool part about what Carnegie did with Napoleon Hill is he said, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to pay you for this assignment. But it's going to take the better part of your life to actually complete this assignment. And when you're done, I want you to publish the study. I want you to be able to give this back to humankind. And I want you to tell me the difference between what makes a man who is poor and saddled with nothing and sleeping on a park bench and has nothing in life, the difference between that individual and a person who had the exact same experience but somehow managed to get out from under that and become successful, which, by the way, was Carnegie himself. He was a poor Scottish guy. And uh, he came from a very tough place, and he turned out to be one of the wealthiest people on the planet. But what he learned through those experiences was it wasn't the difference in uh, who he was. It was the difference in how he thought and how he developed himself. So let's go back to that slide. There are three things. The first thing is talent. Uh, you can't make Gary Ellix taller than he is. I mean, I'm five foot six when I'm on stilts, and that's what I'm going to be because that's DNA. Uh, so I've been given some other gifts. One of them is not height. So uh, you can call me follically challenged as well. So my parents were gracious enough to give me the DNA that said you're going to be U-pattern bald. So it is what it is. Now I can influence that through number three. I can control my technique and put some hair plugs in here if I want to. 
But number one is my DNA. This is what I have been given. Therefore, I have to develop myself to be the very best Gary that I can be. What I need you to do is decide what it is that you want to become. And most people really don't sit down and actually think through that. They don't really have a life plan. They don't have what we call a personal achievement plan. Uh, I've heard Wally talk many times. He calls it a prosperity plan. You can call it anything you want. They're all good names. The main issue is that you actually sit down and plan and think about what you want for yourself, your family, and what your interests are. And until you actually physically decide to make the transition out of, well, that's a good idea, I'd really like to do that, to that's a good idea, I'd really like to do that, now I've got to figure out how to do it. That's the difference between the person who takes action and the person who just talks about it. You know, the mindset of us as salespeople, as technicians, is really important. But the mindset of your customer is also really, really important. In fact, the more you understand about the mindset and kind of the decision-making process of your customers, the more that will influence your sales process and your communications process. Let's take a quick look at this training that we did a while back and really talk about if you understand how your customer is buying, you have a better chance of understanding how to sell to them because they will tell you how they're going to buy. All you have to do is make sure you're listening and align your process to what they're looking for. In this module, we're going to discuss some basic market segmentation. One of the important things to remember in sales, whether you're a service tech or a sales professional, is that everybody is different, right? There's different strokes for different folks. And what happens sometimes is that we can have a really bad experience with a homeowner, and sometimes we tend to carry that bad experience with us to the next homeowner, and we just assume that all people are the same. The reality is some basic analysis of market segmentation can help us understand there's different types of people out there and you have to be prepared to deal with each of them. Again, this is a basic representation of the residential heating and air conditioning market. This is the entire universe of customers. And so we want to break it down according to market segments. The first third is what we call the value-based third of the market segments. The value-based third are the people that you love to have as customers. The value-based consumer loves value. They appreciate quality. They're willing to pay you some extra money you know, to have it done right. They're just not the person that's always looking for the bargain. In fact, they'll often eliminate the cheap guy because they don't want the cheapest guy doing anything in their house, right? I remember one time a few years ago, we had a hailstorm and all the roofing companies were working the neighborhoods. Now, I will tell you, I happen to be in the, in the value-based segment because if you've spent some time going through the prosperity mindset training, you will know that I had nothing in my life until I was in my 40s, right? So now that I work hard and I make my money, I want to spend it on quality things. I can't stand to spend money and then just have it, you know, be, uh, be something of poor quality. So the reality is the value-based consumer wants things done properly. As I was telling you, I had the hailstorm and all the roofing companies that were knocking on the door. Every afternoon for about a week, they would knock on the door and say, hey, do you have a roofing company yet? You know? And so I, I talked to them, and out of about 10 people that stopped by, I can tell you that out of those 10, there were probably about five of those, about half of them, that would begin the conversation by saying something on the lines of, you know, Mr. Homeowner, uh, I can tell you right now that none of these other companies will undersell us. No one's going to do it cheaper than us. Well, as a value-based consumer, I can promise you, I immediately, you know, eliminated them from contention. 
We all know that the cheap person over here, which we'll talk about in a moment, if the cheap person has three bids in front of them, then the first one they get rid of is going to be the high end. Well, the value-based consumer is just the opposite. They're going to look at the three bids and get rid of the cheapest one first and go with the middle or the high guy. It's just the way people operate. So understand the value-based third are great customers. Right? You can go in there, they'll pay full retail, and they're just great people to deal with. Right? Even if there's a problem on a job, they're still really cool to deal with. Another good thing about the value-based consumer is they will listen to you. You know the cheap guy is always going to be, you know, come on, give me your price, give me your price, get enough with the spiel, right? They're always trying to rush you through the process and get to the price. The value-based consumer is interested. They want to know, you know, if they're getting the job done right. They want to know uh, if it's going to be done properly. So they will let you get through your presentation. So again, we all love the value-based consumer. Over here we have the cheap, the cheap consumer, right? Uh, no matter what they're buying, they always buy cheap, whether it's a car, shoes, or groceries. They're always buying cheap. They don't care about quality. They don't care about service. All they want is a really cheap price. They're just the opposite of the value-based consumer. And you've all had the experience of having this person as a customer, right? You drop your price, you get really aggressive on the deal, and then how soon do you regret having this person as a customer? They will make your life miserable, right? So we all know those people. I mean, you can cut them the deal of the century, and whereas this guy, the value-based guy, you know, even if there's a problem with the system, he's cool. This guy could be 100 degrees outside, 72 degrees in the house, and he's calling complaining that it's not 65 degrees. You know what I'm saying? You could just never make this person happy. So you've got two very distinct different types of customers, the value-based consumer and you've got the cheap consumer. Now here's the thing you got to keep in mind. As different as these two groups of people are, they do share one thing in common. And that is at some point in your presentation, they are going to ask you for a discount. This guy is going to ask you for a discount because if you don't drop the price, he's not going to buy from you. But this guy will often ask you for a discount just out of habit, right? You don't really even have to drop the price. And that's the difference between these guys. The value person will ask you for a discount, but you can still earn their business even if you don't drop the price. In other words, they will still say yes to you even if you don't drop the price. If this person, if you don't say yes to a discount, they're not going to buy from you. But here's what happens if you assume every time you get a money objection that it really is a money objection. You end up dropping the price here and you end up, you know, trying to get their business and you drop the price 500 bucks and what do they want? They want another 500 bucks, right? You can never make them happy. You drop the price over here for this guy and you end up giving away $500 or $1,000 worth of gross margin that you didn't really have to give them if you had just probed a little more deeply. Uh, I'll give you an example. As I mentioned, I happen to be in the value-based uh, market third uh, because I didn't have anything in my life for so many years. I remember a few years ago, I was buying an SUV and uh, made the decision on the SUV and was in with the salesman. He was writing up all the paperwork and as he was doing all his stuff, I got up and I was walking on the showroom uh, looking at other cars. And as I walk on the showroom, I see this beautiful convertible, right? And so I'm looking at this convertible and the salesman comes out to me and says, hey, you want to you wanna get this today too while you're here? And I said, well, I, I think probably one car a day is enough uh, and look at the price on this thing, right? I'm not exactly here to buy, you know, a car that I could buy a house for or whatever, you know? And so I'm walking on the car and as I get around to the front of the car, I see a sticker hanging off the front that says 0% financing. And I turn to the salesman, his name was Jim. I said, Jim, I can get 0% financing on this car? And he's like, yeah, do you want one now? And I'm like, well, 
Of course, yeah, mine would have to be red, of course, you know, right? So I ended up buying two cars that day, which, by the way, brings up the topic of financing, which we'll talk about later, because there's no way I buy that car. I mean, I was already buying one car. There's no way I buy a second car on the same day if, you know, I don't have the luxury, in this case, of 0% financing. So, you know, we'll talk about financing when we get into uh, this a little bit deeper. But here's the thing. After I agreed to buy the convertible, went back into the salesman's office and he starts writing up the purchasing order for the car. And when he gets down to the bottom and writes in the number, he puts the number right off the MSRP on, onto the, 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 the contract, the purchasing agreement. And I said, yo, Jim, I mean, you got to give me some kind of discount. I'm buying two cars from you today, you know? And Jim looks at me and says, Wally, I can give you the discount or I can give you the 0% financing, but I can't do both. Well, what do you think I said? <laughs> okay, right? You can say no to a value-based consumer and they'll still, they'll still say yes to you. Again, if you drop the price too quickly though, you end up giving away margin to someone you didn't have to. In other words, if Jim, the salesman, the car salesman, if he had said, well, we'll knock a couple of thousand bucks off if, if, you know, if, if that's what it takes, then he would have dropped 2,000 bucks off and he wouldn't have had to because I said yes anyway. Again, this guy, you give him a discount and all he wants is another discount, more and more and more. And beware if you end up getting their business because they're going to make you miserable very, very quick. So you've got the value-based consumer and you've got the cheap consumer, very different, and yet they have something in common. And that is, at some point, they are both going to ask you for a discount. Well, folks, that's our show this week. Don't forget, got to make sure that you're aligning with the WOW experience. Your CSRs are doing the same thing they need to do to be consistent with the brand experience, the wow factor, right? Make sure you're service technicians, make sure you're not selling out of your own back pocket, and above all else, make sure you understand how your customer buys, what they're thinking, what their mindset is, that will impact how you sell to them. We look forward to seeing you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye for now.